You are listening to a sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermon online at mulvanechurch.com slash sermons. Today we're going to talk about this topic, that Jesus died for our sins, and he did so uh, under the charges that we really ourselves are guilty of. We know that the trial that Jesus had was not a fair one. But uh, to keep a veneer of uh, legality, some charge had to be uh, submitted along with the, uh, with the defendant, uh, with the guilty, uh, as it were, uh, so they could find him guilty as they knew he should be. And we'll find that those are the charges we often find ourselves most guilty of. And what this is is just a further a confirmation, a further illustration of what it was that Jesus did for us. And in the most basic thing we can say about the life and work of Jesus is that he died for our sins. Those exact words are 1 Corinthians 15.3. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. Christ died for our sins. I think for an audience like us today, uh, those who have expressed faith in Jesus Christ, nearly all of us in the audience, who are of the age to do so have, we all recognize that that was necessary for us to do so, and the great benefit for us to do so, uh, that he died for us in our sins, and we recognize that, is because our recognition of sin. There's a universality of sin, Paul said in Romans 3, 9, we've already established that both Jews and Greeks, well, that's the whole world, the, Jews, the Jewish folks and, and the rest, they're all under sin. As it's written, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they've become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Now, those, that montage which goes on of scriptures from mostly Psalms and Isaiah. In each one of those cases, uh, you might be able to say, in this context, this is one of those, you know, where not all doesn't mean just every last single individual. For instance, we might talk about the corruption of the whole world before the flood. And yet, in that corruption of the whole world before the flood, what was there? Well, a singular exception. And just because we say the word sinner doesn't mean we mean the sinner of here, the Romans 3.23, all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. We had a passage like that we talked about from John 9.31 in our Bible class this morning. Sometimes uh, it's talking about a particular class of sinner. And so some of these passages in the original context, we're talking about uh, the, the general population, uh, talking about the general state of the world, not of every single particular member of it, But as Paul uses them, there's a reason why that he could use these passages, of which there's so many, to talk about about the state of the world or the state of society or the state of which the prophet spoke. And eventually you do come to realize, yeah, you know, even though those are often general passages, when applied in strict particular, it does, in its net of those who are sin, it does catch every single person. 
It does. So the statement that all have sinned, uh, here uh, uh, Paul does not seem to want to make or leave room to make uh, an exception. Again, at times, there's righteous exceptions to the general uh, immorality of the world. Noah, the most obvious case. But that is not what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about the fact that everyone has sinned, and everyone needs an offering for sin. And the law gave a lot of offerings for sin. If you lived as a Jew, you had lots of instructions about all the sins you were doing. Maybe nobody should have known better than the Jews as to how sinful they were, because they had the most laws to break. And they were clearly spelled out. And the penalties were clearly spelled out. And the sacrifices were clearly spelled out. But we also find that these things were not pleasing to God. In Hebrews 9.27, excuse me, 9.22, we find that according to the law, one might almost say all things are cleansed with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. So yeah, the Jews should have known how sinful they were and how many offerings needed to make that right. But those offerings actually, and in fact, and in full, did not make it right. So Hebrews 10.4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And so in a world where everyone needs a Savior, where everyone needs a sin offering, because everyone has sinned, and bloods of bulls and goats, even though those purebred line of, of, uh, and lineage of, of wonderful animals, which the Jews kept near the temple, and raised them, many of them within sight of the temple, for the exact purpose, for the high priest of God, in God's holy chosen place, on God's special holy day, to offer these in the, wearing God's approved and designed clothes, it's like, that's still not enough. So then, according to the scriptures, Jesus came. As we already mentioned, 1 Corinthians 15. We go there again. We'll read now two verses. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. Now, from our perspective and the way we talk about things, you might think that, well, yeah, of course the New Testament says this, right? I mean, that's in the Bible. The Bible says that Jesus died for our sins. We're reading it right now. But that's not the importance of this double repeated phrase, as Paul uses it, according to the scripture. We, from our Christian perspective, the whole Bible's an old book, right? For most of us, from our perspective, one part's about as old as the other. I mean, we call it the new, but is that new, right? It, it, sometimes we treat the New Testament uh, kind of like, uh, you know, when Grandma talks about her new couch. Grandma, you bought that 15 years ago. That's not new, right? To Grandma, it's new, but from our perspective, it's just always been there. We can't imagine having been in that room without it. But to Grandma, that's still the new one. We think about the Old and New Testament sometimes in that way. Yeah, there's one that's old and there's one that's older. But when the Apostle Paul here says, this happened according to the Scriptures, he's not referring to the New Testament as the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians is one of the first third of the books of the New Testament written. Most of the New Testament's not there yet. It will be pretty soon. And yes, the New Testament is Scripture. But as Paul uses this phrase here twice, according to the Scripture... That these two things, that Christ died for our sins and that he was raised from the dead. Paul says both of those are according to the scripture. And what he means is the Old Testament 
said these things were coming. The Old Testament prophets saw these days. This was so much part of God's plan that he announced it ahead of time. And so we have a psalm, and we're not going to read too many passages according to the Old Testament scripture, according to the scripture to show this. We're going to read two. Uh, One's in Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is so clear about what it's about, we call it the crucifixion psalm. In the time of David, how many people were being crucified? That didn't happen until the Romans got there. You get out your Bible timeline, you put David much farther back on the left than the Romans. There was no crucifixion under the Jewish administration of Israel in the Old Testament. They didn't crucify people. Somehow, the law still foresaw, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The law still had that. And I wanted the Jews might have thought, why is that there? Is this about hanging? Or, yeah, of course, if you get hung, that's a curse, right? You ever know that to be a blessing to anybody? And so, how, what did the Jews think that that meant? Well, it didn't mean much then. It meant a whole lot later. Same thing here. Psalm 22, we call it the crucifixion psalm. Verse 7, all those who see me sneer at me. They separate their lips and they wag their head and say, Commit yourself to the Lord and let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers have encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count on my bones. This is verse 16 and 17 now. I can count on my bones. Look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. If you ever got on a hot streak at Vegas of predicting the future, as well as this psalm of David predicts what's going to happen at the crucifixion, you'll break the bank. David gets point after point after point correct about what they're going to do. David has what the enemies say. David in this psalm has a couple of the sayings of Jesus referred to. His thirst is mentioned. Uh, the the uh, Committing himself to God is mentioned. But we also have here the piercing and not breaking bones. We have direct descriptions of what happened to Jesus on the cross in the book of Psalms. And again, I think because we don't use a Psalter, I'm, I'm really liking the idea of a Psalter more and more myself all the time. Uh, maybe if we practically did, I wouldn't like it so much, but in theory... But imagine if we'd been singing out of a songbook for generations. And then along comes somebody who fulfills the promises and images of the whole songbook you've been singing out of all your life. When they refer the Jewish audience to the Psalms and to, the, to that record, it's not just in their Bible. It was their songbook in the synagogue. It was their songbook from the temple. I can't imagine how powerful an argument that would have been to show, hey, God did this on purpose. And the scriptures foretold it. And as it says, he died for us. Here's our other passage we'll go to the Old Testament. A little bit longer reading. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, the second most quoted chapter in the New Testament from the Old. But if you count up not just the direct quotations... But if you count up the, uh, the allusions and the references and summaries of it, it actually is the most referred to, not the most quoted directly, but the most referred to passage in the New Testament. We start to read in verse 4 for the idea that his death was directly for
for us. Isaiah 53, 4, surely our griefs he himself bore. There you go, right there. The, the word bore and carried, the taking on of this for somebody else, this is a key point of the whole passage. So, surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we esteemed him stricken. We thought he was just getting beat up. We just thought that God was against him, smitten of God, afflicted. But he was pierced. There's that cross allusion again. For our transgression, he was crushed for our iniquity. The chastising for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging were healed. The piercing, part of the crucifixion. The crushing, the overall effect of killing him. The chastening, that's a word that's not quite as severe as uh, being pierced or crushed or scourged. Scourging is another thing the legal system did to you. Scourging is not something that happened when you know, your neighbor uh, did something wrong. You didn't scourge your neighbor. That, that was legal proceeding. And, and here, this chastening, that's usually the kind of uh, talk used in the family. The father chastens the child, right? And we can find that uh, usage throughout the Old Testament. And so there's, there's multiple aspects of this. There's the legal things. There's the things that the government would do in, in its capacity. There's the things that were done, as it were, within the family. And there's the overall effect. Now, this was, again, necessary because it was, again, for our transgression. It is for our iniquity. The effect was for our well-being and our healing. Because we, all of us, as sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. All our iniquity, all of us who are strength, every last sheep of this scattered flock, every last one of the, the iniquities of all of them went on to one. And so he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he didn't open his mouth. He didn't argue against it. He didn't say, it's, it's no fair you're blaming me. All you people are guilty, and I'm the one taking the punishment? Imagine if Jesus would have argued that. He could have. He rightly, uh, I guess, could have. Uh, but no, he was there knowing that it would come unto him. He went there to take these punishments. He didn't open his mouth. He didn't complain. Like a lamb led to slaughter. So all this whole, this whole group of sheep scattered over the hillside. One stays. One takes the blame. One gets taken to the slaughter. One gets sent in for the clipping at the shearer. And he didn't complain about it. He didn't open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, we'll talk about the terrible mock trial, fake trial, bad trial that he got. His judgment was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? The people should have been punished for this. The people deserved it. He's the one who stood there and took it for the team. He took it for them all. That killed him. It crushed him. His grave was then assigned to wicked men or with wicked men. Yet he was with the rich in his death. So he would have been with a they, they would have just toned him like all the other crucifixion uh, victims into a mass grave. That's where his body was headed. But then someone said, could we have the body please? And Pilate gave it. And so he was buried with the rich because he'd done no violence. <clears throat> Nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. 
And so, out of regard for what he had done, Pilate himself pronounces him several times innocent. Pilate himself, when, when a nice man, a respectful man, requests the body of this man condemned a criminal, he said, yeah, you can have it. And they took him and gave him a proper burial. So they knew where the body was. So they knew when the body wasn't there. Verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him. What does it say? Burnt, whole burnt offerings and sin offerings? I, I, I have, he said, God said, I don't desire those. But this crushing, this one, God is pleased with. This was God's plan. It put him to grief. It was hard. Because he would render himself the guilt offering. All those offerings that can't take away sin, here's the one that did. And now after his death is the hope. And for most of us, what hope is there in this world after death? Not a lot. But for him, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his day. He's dead and you're prolonging his days? Can you imagine the Jews prior to Jesus in faith trying to figure this out? How would you have sorted through this? They knew this was about the Messiah. They knew there was a suffering servant coming. But how does this all fit together? Folks who don't know the history so well. Folks who believe these theories about Deutero and Tertiero and Quattro and 2nd and 3rd and 4th and 5th Isaiah. Thinking that Isaiah was written many centuries after the purported time of Isaiah. And that is the general theory in liberal seminaries today, and you'll see it, you know, Time Magazine, History Channel, if anybody still watches that, and the like. And there are people who think, well, you know, this had to be written by Christians after the fact. This couldn't have been predictive. Except for the fact we have the great Isaiah scroll from the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is a copy of Isaiah from the time of Jesus, except that we have the uh, Septuagint translation translating these very words into Greek and preserving them at least 250 years before Jesus. Isaiah has been Isaiah for 700 years before Christ. When we read Isaiah, it's a very old book. And how do we figure this out? And so some, not understanding that history and integrity of the text, but believing these multiple later author author, author, theories about the text, there are some people who actually think that Christians inserted this into Isaiah after the fact. They say some Christian wrote this. No, no Christian wrote this, but a believer did. An inspired believer did, knowing of what God, uh, through him revealed, would come. So, God was pleased to do this. He will see his offspring, he'll prolong his days. In the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand as a result of the anguish of his soul. Don't think this is easy, even though it was predicted. He will see it and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. He will justify. What is the great hope of the New Testament? That in him we are justified. We're told how the just shall live by faith. It's interesting, in the English Standard Version of this, and and, and two or three other reputable translations, it's definitely a minority, um, minority rendering, but it is one in legitimate text. It says, for this passage, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many be accounted as righteous. Not that they will be justified or be righteous, but be accounted as righteous. Which immediately makes us think of Romans 4 and verse 5, where faith is what? Counted or imputed 
as righteousness. And so Isaiah even sees this, that righteousness is given or accounted to, or as most translations say, these will be justified through this one, my servant, because or as he will bear their iniquities. What takes us to unrighteousness? Our iniquities. What does he handle? He again bears, this key word of this text, bears our iniquity. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself. That sounds like Philippians 2. He poured himself out to death and he was numbered with the transgressors. But the gospel say crucified with a thief on the right and left. Yet, here's the key word again. He himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressor. Father, forgive them. He sat on the cross. And so some, from time to time, have called this section, and this is the highlight of it, but there's, from chapter 40 on, these servant songs, these messianic songs. Some have called this section the gospel according to Isaiah. Because it is. This is the gospel according to the scriptures. Can you imagine the effectiveness of Christian preachers who believe this, who could go to Jewish people who had this book in their hands for generations past and say, let's turn to that page. Let's read that page. Could you preach Jesus from this text? This is the text the eunuch was reading. When Philip came up and joined himself to the chariot, and he preached to him Jesus. So Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture. He for us, as Matt led us in the song this morning, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood, hallelujah, what a savior. Then the next part about us, guilty, vile, and helpless we, but spotless lamb of God was he, full atonement can it be, hallelujah, what a savior. We, guilty, vile, helpless, we, I think, end up doing the things he's charged with. As I said, there was charges. There were formal charges at his trial. The thin veneer of legality trying to be maintained that they could say Jesus deserved to die. The Jews said he was guilty of blasphemy. That's why they wanted to kill him. Now, we really know, and Pilate knew, they did it for envy, but the charge, the charge of which the Jews condemned him was blasphemy. Uh, This is uh, Matthew 26. The high priest says to him, tell us, are you the Christ, the Son of God? He said, well, I've told you so, but I'll tell you now. You're not going to see the Son of Man. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming of the clouds of heaven. Jesus is paraphrasing Daniel 9 there. He said, I'm the guy of Daniel 9. That's what Jesus says. Sometimes we, because we don't recognize that's a summary of Daniel 9, we don't recognize that Jesus is just saying, I am. I'm the son of man. I'm the predicted one. And the high priest tears his clothes and acts like that's an affront. It's what he wanted him to say all along. He acts like he's offended. He said, this is blasphemy. Same effect as when Jesus had in the temple taught, I and the Father are one. They picked up stones to stone him. There's a lot of things they put up with Jesus they didn't like. But it, it was the, the idea that he was making himself equal to God that made them crazy. And so on the charge of blasphemy, the Jews took him over to the Romans. 
The Romans didn't care much whether the Jews thought it was blasphemous or not. You know, because, I mean, the, the, the Romans, what did they know about the Jews? And I'm not sure why that's advancing on its own. With the, the Romans knew the Jews looked down on them as vile people and blasphemers already. And so you can't really take the charge of blasphemy to the Romans. They didn't care about that at all. No matter of fact, they probably kind of liked the fact that Jews were tweaked by it. Now, when they got over to the Romans, they have to say, he's treasonous. He's rebellious. He's a rival for your power. And they threatened Caesar, saying, if you don't convict him, then you're no friend of Caesar. Just about two years before the trial of Jesus, before Pontius Pilate, the man from history that we know was Pontius Pilate's benefactor. Uh, the, the, the Romans had these connections of uh, who you knew and which party you're in, and they were real partisan about those things. We wouldn't understand anything about that kind of thing. But there was a, there was a, a guy who was like the leader of opposition. At, at first he wasn't. He was, a, he was with the, the, the Caesar, but then he ended up becoming an opposition figure. And all of him and his political farm team, of which Pilate was part of, they, they, were, they were all suspect after this guy, and we know his name was uh, Lucius uh, Selenius. Uh, Lucius Selenius got crossways, and then eventually he got all of his, uh, his uh, estate seized, and he got killed. And the charge was that he was, he was uh, an enemy of Caesar. And here is Pilate, who was a member of that political farm team, as it were, a member of that political party, where their leader had just gotten killed a couple of years before for this. And the Jews say, you know, we know who you're with. And you need to prove to Caesar how loyal you are. And we're going to make sure Caesar knows how disloyal you are, just like your benefactor was, if you don't crucify this man. So if you don't crucify him, you are no friend of Caesar. And Pilate can't afford that. So even though his wife has said, you know, hey, I had a dream and we ought not do anything with this fellow. Even though Pilate twice said and Herod himself said, there's no guilt here. Seven times Jesus is pronounced innocent at the trial that will eventually condemn him, or set of trials. No, but to the Romans, the veneer of legality is here that he's treasonous, that he's rebellious. I think we have to look and see, aren't these really the charges against us? What are our great sins? What, are, what is the great sins of people? Oh, he's an adulterer. Oh, he curses too much. That guy, he's a drunk. That guy, he's this. That guy, he's that. But at the root of it, the great sins of men, where we overstep ourselves, where we go in the wrong direction, is when we blaspheme, when we don't rejoice in the things of God, but we rejoice in the things of men. And we are rebellious, and we follow not the direction of God, but the direction of others. Or because we're blasphemers who lift ourselves up so high, we follow our own way. What did Jeremiah say? It's not man's way to direct his steps. What do we do all the time? We try to direct our own steps. And who do we give the glory to when we do? And as long as it's going great, man, it's all on me. Of course, if it fails, it's all on you. It's all Matt's fault, right? That didn't work out because Matt. No, it's Jay all along. Jeremiah 17. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind who makes flesh his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord.
There we are. That's us. That's humanity. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. I will make him a tree planted by the water. I'll extend its roots by the stream. And he will not fear when the heat comes. But its leaves will be green. And will not be anxious in the year of drought. And not cease to yield fruit. But why don't we trust? Why do we trust in mankind? And why don't we trust in God? The trusting in God is obviously the best way. But verse 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? When you look at the sin and wreck and ruin of people's lives, what do we, don't we always say to ourselves, what was he thinking? And can't we, over and over in our lives, and just look around us, and can't we, what was he thinking, and what was she thinking, and what were they thinking? Can't we do that all around us? I mean, it's just, we, we never run out of ammo, right? It's like a machine gun with an endless belt. What was he thinking? What were they thinking? Now, do we ever turn that to us? What was I thinking? Not so often. Why? Because the heart is deceitful above all else. It's desperately sick. And who can understand? But instead, it says, I, the Lord, search the hearts and test the mind. Even to give each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. And so, blasphemy, treason, rebellion, these are our sins. Now, you know, Jesus was actually literally swapped out on the crucifixion line for a murderer. Right? They had three crosses because they had three criminals to kill that day. And I think Jesus showed up unexpectedly. He was not on the docket, was he? The Jews show up early in the morning, hey, we need you to get this guy in right away. And they did. But they let a murderer named Barabbas go free. And this would be one of the things, if Jesus was ever going to stand up and object, wouldn't he go, hey, that's not fair? Did he? He didn't. And you think about, who was it Jesus came to save? Jesus came to save Barabbas. He did, didn't he? He saved his life that day, but, but more so, and, and, and cosmically so, he came to save Barabbas' soul. I, I wonder, what happened to Barabbas? Did this humble him? Did this cause him to think about Jesus? And there we are. Here Jesus came, as we read from Isaiah, he came for us to die for us, to bear our iniquities. And do we think, and are we thankful to him for that? Or might we be hardened like we think Barabbas might have been and just, hey, I got lucky. Escape that one. And then he goes and does some more. And then some people say, oh, don't, don't compare me to a murderer. I don't like that. And don't compare me to blasphemers and treasonous and rebellious people. But then we find such things as John says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. If you hate your brother, you're a murderer. Why do we even have the saying, if looks could kill? Because don't we know the mind behind that look? And haven't we all received that look? And haven't we all given that look? Why? Because there's hate in people's heart. Now, luckily, that hate is not effective to murder. Otherwise, we'd all have to wear an eye-proof vest. We would. We just have to wear one constantly. But what we note is that Jesus, as the prophecy said, he was going to be killed. God sent him there for that purpose. His outcome 
was fully determined. The high priest had said before they arrested him, it's expedient that one man should die for the people. And they were going to make sure that he did. And looking back on it in Acts 4, the apostles quoting the Psalms would say, Why? By the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, did your servant say, Why did the Gentiles rage? And the people devise futile things. That's Psalm 2. The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered against the Lord and against your Christ. And here's how that played out. In this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand had predestined to occur. Yeah, Jesus' fate was sealed from the moment he came and began to walk resolutely toward Jerusalem for this event. This was going to happen. It was what God had planned. The outcome was predetermined. Jesus was going to go and die, but for our sins. Now for us, on these same charges, blasphemy, rebellion, all these things that are contrary to God's will. We know what the outcome is going to be. The outcome has been determined with us in regard to these, dependent upon our state in Jesus. If you go to face the Lord without the benefit of this sacrifice, without, by the knowledge of him, said Isaiah, the New Testament will say, by faith in him, to justify, to have you accounted as righteous, we know the outcome of you at the great tribunal in the end. What is the outcome of all those not acquitted in Jesus? The outcome is certain. 2 Thessalonians 1, 9, he'll deal out, or 1, 8 and 9, he'll deal out retribution to those who don't know God and to those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. You will be acquitted in Jesus, forgiven in Jesus, adopted and reconciled and redeemed. And you'll have one outcome, or you won't be like these, and you'll have the other. But we can have the outcome that is predicted and predestined in Christ of those with faith, not of the law who work, but of those who have the faith to believe. Romans 4, verse 5. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited, accounted, imputed as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not take to account. The outcome of these things is as determined for us as they were determined for Jesus. Jesus was going to be crucified and he was going to bear the sins of many, as the scriptures say. And we will be counted, accredited, uh, credited, all these synonyms, will be counted as righteous by faith in him. Or we'll be outside as those who don't know God and who don't obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those two ends are as determined as they could possibly be in scripture. And for us then, what do you do with it? What do you do with it? Do you recognize your sin? Do you recognize that he bore them? Do you recognize that you need to repent of them and in faith come to him? Or do you want to go in a rebellion and go, eh, I'm good. You're not. 
You're not even good now, much less in the future. And certainly not in eternity. And so Jesus died according to the scriptures for our sins on the charges that really should have been laid against us. But you read Isaiah, and he knew that. He knew that was the plan. And that was the grace to do it and offer it for us. So to come and take advantage by faith of these things in Jesus Christ and to uh, turn your back on the sins that are so terrible in the world, we'd ask you to come today. Confess Jesus so you can be baptized and added in to him uh, or confess sin to return. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at mulvanechurch.com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.